Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. A terrifying mid-flight emergency forced an Alaska Airlines plane back to Portland earlier this month and launched an investigation that temporarily grounded fleets of Boeing 737 MAX 9 passenger jets nationwide. I'm Elliot Noose, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Miraculously, nobody on Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 was critically hurt when a door plug, that's a wall panel that's used as an emergency exit on some planes, but just a window on others, suddenly blew off, leaving a hole in the side of the plane. Here's how one of the pilots on that flight reported the emergency. Hey, Portland Approach, Alaska 1282, emergency aircraft now leveling 12,000 and left heading 3-4-0. Alaska 1282, the cabin had depressurized and passengers put on oxygen masks while the plane dropped to a lower altitude before making an emergency landing at PDX. Reporters Zane Sparling and Maxine Bernstein were among the team of reporters who spoke to investigators and shaken passengers, and they're here to discuss their reporting. Max, Zane, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy hey, to be here. Max, Elliot, good to be back. Uh, Zane, you ended up with uh, the first byline uh, on the initial story from the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Uh, how did you get onto it? Elliot, uh, it was a, a pretty typical evening. I was done with work for the day. Uh, I was still downtown, and suddenly my phone is uh, lighting up with messages uh, internally from other other coworkers on Slack, and it's really just uh, all systems firing at once when you realize you're being called back into this sort of breaking news scenario, uh, particularly here, because while we've all sort of now become aviation experts and uh, can quite easily distinguish between a door plug and a plugged door, at the time, all I knew was there's a hole in a plane and how terrifying that must have been for everyone on board. And I really want to credit the team effort um, because I was not the only person working on this uh, the night that we all learned that this Alaska Airlines MAX 9 had returned to PDX. Um, We had Ryan Fernandez uh, manning social media. And what that really means is we're seeing these uh, firsthand accounts emerging, photos, videos. And uh, Ryan was really helpful in connecting me with people who were on that flight just by messaging them over uh, Twitter and TikTok. And that allowed uh, us to get things going right away. When you were, you know, rushing back to the office and you you heard about a, a flight returning and a hole in the plane and all of that, were you, did, I mean, did you know that it had landed safely, that it, you know, that, that the passengers were uh, all right or, or was that, uh, were you still sort of in the dark on that? I did know that the plane had landed safely. Uh, of course, your first thought when you see a hole on a plane is, uh, has this been an explosive decom- depressurization? I didn't know that every passenger was relatively uninjured at that point. So of course we're concerned that someone could have really been sucked out of the plane, right? Like Harrison Ford on Air Force One or something like that. Uh, luckily that didn't happen, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and of course my mind is is going back because it's only been a couple of months as a, a regular news consumers role member since uh, another plane was forced to land at PDX. And the pilot was of course charged 
uh, with attempting to cut the engines of that Alaska Airlines flight. So, and Max and I have both reported on that story. Now, this ended up being a completely different thing, but at the moment, I didn't know whether this was an accident, um, potentially a malfunction, or was it sabotage? So you have all of this, um, uh, you know, sort of real-time information coming in on social media from passengers and observers at the airport and stuff. Um, how did you uh, get into uh, reporting on that and trying to figure out, you know, what had happened and and um, what, uh, uh, you know, how to interpret what you were seeing? Yeah, so I was really juggling uh, three different things at once. One, I'm checking the feeds that uh, Ryan and other users uh, were, were putting into Slack so I could see these, these new updates and social media posts. But I was also uh, pretty quickly uh, on the phone with one of the um, passengers, Elizabeth Lee, uh, she um, was still at Portland International Airport. She, I could hear her friends talking to her in the background. I could hear gate agents uh, trying to sort of shepherd these people onto new flights. And of course, at the same time, Elizabeth had just had this very traumatic experience. Uh, she, I think like everyone on board, she thought she was going to die there. And uh, what it turned out, what it was supposed to be a girl's trip to Ontario, California had transformed into this horrifying thing. Um, those initial accounts from eyewitnesses are so compelling. Um, and to hear and to try and as a journalist, of course, you need to get that information out to the public, but you also need to be approaching someone in a trauma-informed way, uh, you know, respecting you know, whatever motions they're processing. So I was doing that. I was actually texting with another passenger who couldn't get on the phone because he was with his family. And I'm looking at the messages that are coming in from my coworkers, the updates, the uh, the process we're doing to to get this story up and edited as soon as possible. And I think that you uh, you you saw and and uh, and obtained some of the first um, you know some some of the uh, footage uh, that the passengers on the plane you know were kind of uh, filming while they were in midair and and you know sort of strapped into their seats. Uh, with very little else to do other than wait for the plane to get back to the airport. Um, can you describe uh, what that uh, what the scene looked like on on the plane based on what you saw? Yeah, so we've all been on planes. I think we've all had that thought run through our mind when we, maybe there's just a, even a little bit of turbulence about what if something went wrong, even though, of course, aviation, commercial aviation is incredibly safe in this country. Um, this was uh, particularly moving, not because of just the visual of seeing that that really, I mean, it looks like a, a chasm in the night sky, right? I mean, it's almost surreal. That was so striking, but also um, the stillness, right? Uh, Kyle Rinker, another passenger, uh, texted me and he said it was deathly silent on the plane after that initial blowout. And uh, I think what's really interesting about that is none of us really know how we'd react in that sort of life or death situation. Certainly, you can imagine praying, maybe for the first time, uh, holding hands with a loved one. Uh, but you can also imagine someone getting hysterical and screaming, right? I mean, that maybe I would be screaming. I don't know. Uh, so to know that everyone kind of just was collectively holding their breath on that on that passenger flight is um, a really striking a part of the story to me. And the the I think the the other interesting thing about that footage is that you can actually hear passengers clapping. Uh, when they landed, which is something that you don't see very often on flights anymore. Max, you you talked to uh, some other passengers who were on the plane later on. Uh, what did they tell you about their experience? Yeah, they really helped walk me through what happened from the moment the plane 
you know, took off. Uh, the plane was about 20 minutes late on takeoff, and I spoke to a Portland architect, uh, Nick Hoke, who was flying to see his girlfriend in California, and he was in a window seat in row um, 12A, uh, 12A window seat, and he described that they were about five to ten minutes into the flight when he suddenly heard a, a loud boom, a pop. Uh, it sounded to him like an explosion in the uh, further back uh, part of the plane, and suddenly uh, it felt like the cabin was depressurized and the ox- oxygen mask dropped right in front of him. He remembers like fumbling with the mask to put it on over his mouth, and he was concerned the bag wouldn't blow up, um, wouldn't fill. And uh, he said, you know, there was this vapor in front of him from the condensation, he realized later. And he just was like, he was looking around, and it was after that big, loud pop and boom. It, it was suddenly just silence and people are wondering, he was wondering what happened. There was uh, you know, a flight attendant came over the intercom in a real tense, serious uh, voice to put on your oxygen mask, stay in your seat. And that kind of just the tone of her voice cemented to him that this, whatever was going on was very serious. Um, I also spoke to a grandmother from Washington State who was flying with her two young grandchildren, ages five and seven, and um, she described uh, this like sudden uh, push forward in her seat as if um, she likened it to someone riding in a car and, and the driver slams on the brakes and you go flying forward, and then this like heavy wind that pushed them back into the seat and the oxygen masks come down. And she, um, you know, her seven-year-old grandson is in the window seat and, you know, he sees the mask and he says, you know, Grammy, are are we supposed to put this on? And, And she's like, yes, he puts, you know, she said he was a champ, put his, his mask on and, uh, she put on her own mask and helped her granddaughter, age five, who was in the middle seat next to her, um, she held their hands and, you know, together they said a prayer for their safety. She she thought the smoke in the air, uh, the vapor, she thought it was smoke. So she took her mask off momentarily to see what it was. And she turned her head to the left. And that's when she, for the first time, noticed the hole in the fuselage. Um, and, uh, she's an emergency, she's a nurse, a longtime nurse. And she told me she's used to emergencies because, um, I don't know how, you know, generally a, a grandmother with two young grandchildren, uh, is going to react. You're always as a parent told, you know, the kids feed off how you react. And so, um, she was calm and, and kept her grandchildren calm throughout. Um, and she, uh, several of the passengers said they had Alaska Wi-Fi as free, so they were able to text their loved ones. And the uh, Nick Hoke, um, at one point, just not he he felt the plane rapidly 
going down in altitude. He thought they were falling. Are we falling out of the sky? And, and uh, there was not a lot of information shared at that time. So he got on a text message with his girlfriend and told her something's wrong, something seriously wrong. And, and you know, she remarkably um, was really supportive and, uh, you know, saying, well, you you know, it's it looks like you're turning around because uh, he was noticing the plane made really sharp bank turns to to the right. Um, and she was saying, well, you're probably it's good thing this happened, you know, early on and, and you're turning around. But there was and, and this is all while they're in midair, right? It's she, yes. she's yeah, on, they went uh, down looking at the flight path on, online or something like that. Presumably during their their whole text screen. And he shared us shared with us the the text um, screen, uh, like a running video of, of their back and forth text exchange. Um, and then the plane was about at 16,000 feet when the plug blew out of the plane and it lowered, it came down pretty low. And then it, he described it as finally like um, uh, leveling out and he felt at, at least uh, safer at that point. Um, and though there was some s- silence during that, at one point there was a woman he described in the back who just kind of stood up and just yelled that a man's shirt just got sucked off his chest. Um, and then after that, another man behind him, you know, took off his mask, unbuckled his seatbelt and stood up and pointed there's an effing hole in our plane. There's, you know, and he res- shouted that twice and that's not supposed to be there. And he said that just like made everyone really anxious. And he, he just, he was, he was in row 12. So that was much further back, but he was like, please sit down. And then the flight attendant got back on the intercom and, and must've noticed this and said, please remain in your seat, keep your oxygen masks on, etc." And, Anyway, then um, he described it as, you know, it was, it was, it felt like forever, but it, it, it was really, this occurred over minutes and uh, the plane, uh, the captain came on and alerted them that the plane was, was going to land um, and to, to stay in their seats. And, you know, they kind of braced themselves, but landed safely and, and then he described how surreal it was because people just like got their belongings and deboarded the plane, got off the plane like it was any nor- other normal flight. And he thought that was just really odd. And that that was after once they landed, uh, there were medics that were waiting who came on and came to help the, uh, there was a 15-year-old um, who had his shirt blown off and um, was able to get to the other side of the plane. Yeah, really uh, an incredible scene. And, and um, as you, as you both mentioned, uh, very lucky. uh, It seems that it occurred um, when it did in the flight uh, at, you know, fairly relatively low altitude. um, And, uh, and uh, that the, this uh, door plug was next to, uh, two empty seats, right? No one, no one was sitting right next to where the uh, uh, the hole in the the plane was. Uh, 
Max, you mentioned uh, Vicki Kreps, the grandmother who was traveling with her two grandkids. Uh, one of them is named Brady. Uh, Brady is seven. Uh, and uh, she, uh, Vicki, recorded uh, a short clip of, of Brady recounting this. Uh, I'm going to play that now. I was sitting down watching a movie. All of a sudden, I just looked forward to this big blush of wind in my face. Then these things, then these masks come down. And then I put it on, and I just blew through. And that's because I want to be safe. I don't want to do anything bad. But there's a one million, billion chance of that happening. So it's so lucky that I got to experience it. An interesting take on, on things. Um, uh, very, very uh, I don't know, optimistic uh, look at it. Uh, Max, why did, why did Vicky record that, uh, that little clip? Yeah, so Vicky recorded um, a couple of clips with her grandchildren afterwards. I think she was helping them process what they had just been through. Um, and, you know, I think there's been a lot of media coverage of this flight. And she told me her seven-year-old wanted to be interviewed by the media. And so she, you know, took out her, her phone and did this mock interview with him, to, and that's that's what you see there. Um, and you know, the the five year old acknowledged, she, uh, "Were you scared?" And she goes, "I was scared." And then he says, "I was half scared," <laughs> which. Uh, uh, but they went on to also. He wanted to um, make this a learning experience as well for other kids. And he clearly, um, you know, he's holding that aircraft safety card that everyone finds in the back of the seat in front of them and, and, you know, probably don't read it as well as Brady is now. Um, but, uh, he wanted to make sure other kids, recognize the importance of paying attention to that safety card and the instructions on it because they did. And that's what helped them get through this flight successfully. Um, so that was, uh, the point of that, but, uh, the grandma said she was really trying to help them. She thought it would be healing for them to talk about what they went through and use it to help others. And remarkably, I think they were on the plane back to California the very next day. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the passengers, once they got off the plane, they were told they could go to a certain gate to try to to try to figure out whether they'll get on another plane or change their plans. She decided that after that, she was just going to take her grandkids back home to her house in, in Washington State. Uh, that it was too late. She didn't want to. She 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 felt that they needed some security after that. Uh, some uh, so she brought them home, but organized uh, to get on a flight the next day, the next morning, back to their parents in California. Um, and so she, she, they flew the next morning, and I think she continued to videotape them while they were waiting for the, the flight. Uh, and in one video, you see at the end of their, their, um, their lesson or their message to other kids, 
they get they each get a Starbucks pink drink and they clink it and then they get back on their next flight uh, to fly home to their parents. Max, I think those those stories of of how they're kind of one the return to normality, but also it, it was really um, heartwarming to see the kids' perspective on that. You know, I I think it's really great that uh, Max that you're able to get both those text messages um, from the 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 couple, but also, yeah, the, the grandmother's perspective was really, really made this from a, just a, 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 a breaking news story into something where the real people were involved and, and we could see how they processed it. Of course, the, the story didn't end with the, uh, the, the, the breaking news piece of it. Uh, almost as soon as the plane was back on the ground, uh, the investigation began into exactly what, what went wrong. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, which investigates uh, aviation crashes and, and other transportation incidents, uh, I think was on the ground in Portland in, in a matter of just a few hours. Um, and uh, and I, I, I think they were uh, particularly interested in uh, recovering that door plug, which um, because it fell off the plane uh, was uh, somewhere along the flight path. And for a, uh, a good couple of days, I think uh, it was not, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, the incident happened Friday night and uh, they didn't find the door plug until Sunday. Is that, is that right? Um, I believe it was Sunday, uh, Sunday evening and Sunday night. Yeah. Max, you, you tracked down, uh, the guy who, uh, found the door plug, uh, found it in his yard. Uh, let's hear from, from, uh, from that man, Bob, Bob Sauer. Late Sunday afternoon, uh, a friend of mine called me and said, you should probably check your backyard because they think it fell in our neighborhood. So I, I still wasn't in that much of a hurry to go out. I had other things I had to finish. So I, I did that for a while. And then I got my flashlight and went out to look in the backyard because it was dark by this time. And my kids and I planted trees in the backyard 20 years ago, and they've gotten really big now. So that backyard's pretty dark. Um, so I got around the corner and with my flashlight and the beam, there was something white underneath the trees where there shouldn't have been something white. So I went back to look at it, and it was the missing piece from the airplane. Uh, Max, uh, how do you how do you find Bob? So uh, it wasn't just me; it was also with the help of others who were um, working at their desks and scouring social media, etc. But um, I had listened on my own. It was Sunday night to the NTSB briefing, and I recall hearing the chair uh, announce that the door plug had been located and mentioned uh, that NTSB planned to retrieve it the next morning. Uh, and it said it was in the area, of, it was found by a Portland teacher in the area of um, Barnes Road and 217. So the next morning uh, on Slack, you know, everyone wants to find who's Bob, who's Portland Bob. And um, so I thought, you know, we should go out there. Uh, we should go out to that area, 217 and Barnes. Maybe they're still out there. Maybe somebody saw NTSB van or, or noticed them retrieving this door plug. Um, so I uh, volunteered to do that. And uh, I went to 217 and Barnes, and we have another editor, Kirsten Gabrielson, who lives in the area, and sh she suggested stopping by a popular bagel shop, Sunrise Bagels, I think, which is right in a strip mall, right near that intersection. And I, so I went there, and uh, one of the 
men working behind the counter. He said, oh, we were just talking about the uh, discovery of the plug. And he said he heard there were phones that were found and he just kind of points the direction near Taylor Street. So, you know, I'm looking up where Taylor, I get back in the car and I see there's actually a Beaverton police uh, patrol car that's just parked in the strip mall. So I drive up to the driver's side of the door um, like police do. And, and I asked, hey, you know, do you know where this door block was found? And he said he had no idea that he actually read it in the Oregonian that it was discovered. But he ha- he did not know. Uh, anyway, so then from there, I continued on to Taylor Street. Meanwhile, our breaking news editor, um, Beth Slavic, is also monitoring um, the Slack channels. And Kirsten, again, finds something on a Facebook group for the Cedar Mill neighborhood uh, photo of the door plug on someone's front lawn. And uh, so I message, I get a I enter that Facebook group. I try to uh, contact the person who posted the photo. Beth Slavic is working as well, and she's trying to trace the name of the person whose photo it is and gets an address. So I, I went up and down. Taylor Street is a pretty, uh, it's a hilly street. I went up to the top, didn't notice anything. I drove back down, didn't notice anything. But as soon as we had an address of someone who took the photo. I went to that address, which wasn't far from Taylor Street. And um, when I got there, um, the son, uh, who's a junior in high school, uh, told me that his dad was driving him to high school that morning and they thought they saw a car accident on a front lawn, but then they circled back and realized, oh, that's the door plug. That's the NTSB on the front lawn. And they took a video of it as they're driving by. So I asked him if he could take me to that location where it was. Uh, I, he got in my car and I drove, he showed me where to go and he took me to the home. And meanwhile, Beth Slavic at the office is, you know, is checking addresses on Taylor street um, and finds there's a Bob. We're looking for a Bob. And hey, that Bob is a teacher at Catlin Gable, science teacher. So we anyway, I rang the doorbell. Nobody's home. And Beth, meanwhile, from the office is calling Catlin Gable. And there's uh, Bob Sauer, we learn, is the gentleman who's uh, found the door plug on his property after after, um, he, he, I'll tell you what he said, but anyway, he, um, we arranged to interview him at Catlin Gable that afternoon, like at one fifteen, and, uh, we got to meet him in his science room at Catlin Gable. And he sat down and explained to us that he was, he was oblivious about, you know, where this, uh, part of the plane ended up or in what neighborhood, uh, he was monitoring, you know, through radio news, he was monitoring what had happened, but he wasn't paying attention to where it, where it fell or um, where it was supposed to have fallen um, until his 
ex-wife, he says his friend in the video later, I asked him who, who was the friend. And he said it was his ex-wife who called him and said, hey, there, you know, people are looking all around that neighborhood. You should probably check the property. And that's when he said he went out that night. And it was about, he got the call about 8 p.m. and went out that night. And that's when he noticed the white gleaming in his cedar trees. And that occurred while the NTSB was holding a press conference that night, Sunday night. And when they started the press conference, like at 8 p.m., they didn't know the door plug had been located, but he, you know, he was looking up uh, numbers on the internet on how to contact NTSB. And then during or towards the end of the NTSB briefing, the chair acknowledged like the new, that first they said it hadn't been found. And then by the end of the briefing, they said, well, we have a change, change of events. We, we've just been contacted by Portland's Bob and who, they were very grateful. He said they were so excited that that had been located and that it had been located in one piece. Um, and they came the next morning to his property to uh, retrieve it, take photos of it, and they plan to uh, ship it back to their lab in Washington, D.C. Very dramatic timing, at the very least, uh, breaking into a, a, an ongoing press conference. Uh, since all this has unfolded, uh, the 737 Mac, uh, Max 9 planes, uh, like this one, um, all the ones that have included these door plugs have been grounded by the Federal Aviation Administration. Uh, the agency is investigating uh, Boeing's manufacturing and quality control uh, to see if they failed to um, produce the planes safely or to catch the mistakes, uh, catch, excuse me, to catch mistakes on the production line. Um and uh, this is, you know, obviously uh, affects flights that are occurring all over the world. Um, and uh, it captured the imagination of people all over the world um, who, uh, you know, the flying public. And uh, and it's really rare that a big uh, sort of international breaking news story unfolds right here in our backyard. Um, what, very literally in the case of Bob, uh, so what was it like with journalists from all over uh, kind of jostling for a piece of the story and uh, trying to get a, um, uh, you know, uh, trying to get many of the same passengers and, and uh, get a sense of what was happening? You know, I can speak on that a little bit. I, I know that one thing that is always frustrating for people who are uh, experiencing these these internationally newsworthy events is that it often oftentimes a normal person feels like, well, I've told my story. I told it to person A, I told it to person B. And they don't necessarily understand, or maybe they do understand, but they understand. They don't, the re reality is that every single outlet wants to talk to these people. Every single outlet wants them to tell their story again to them. And so they can put their own spin on it and they don't have to aggregate other reports. And I know that for the people I talked to, um, Elizabeth, went on to speak with the New York Times. Uh, Kyle did a, a video interview of CNN. So they they did go and give a few other interviews after I spoke to them first. But after that, I, I heard from both of them that they were getting a lot of a deluge of media contacts. And I think it can be frustrating for people when they just feel like I've told my story. I might not have told it to you specifically, uh, but I have told my story. Of course, from the reporter's perspective, we are always trying to get uh, the exclusive get the scoop. And so I, I think that Max 
you know, you, you had a great job. You got that interview with Bob. I know he spoke to another outlet, but you, yours was up first. I mean, we were, we were really gunning to get the news out to people as fast as we could. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels like a, a, a chase of sorts, uh, working to find people and, um, get the interviews and learn the information and provide it to readers. Um, but that's, you know, that's what our breaking news team uh, is used to here. It's on, you know, a, a national story that basically dropped in our laps. And uh, it's important that we all, you know, work to, to chase down the details and the information and to provide it to readers uh, the passengers I spoke to, you know, one, uh, Nick is a Portland resident. Um, so, and he told me, you know, he feels an affinity towards the Oregonian and talking to us, he actually turned down CNN. So of course that put a smile on my face, but, um, and, uh, and I think there's, you know, others after they, other passengers, cause they are bombarded by, um, by reporters from, everywhere. Uh, and I, at least the passengers I spoke to were pretty gracious and accommodating and, and wanted to tell their stories. One thing Nick Hoke um, asked that, you know, he wants to speak to the other passengers who were, who went through this and everyone kind of, even after they got off the plane and he waited to, to book another plane and they were all in line. He said he waited for three hours um, he said few people were talking to one another about it. They were all like on their phones telling their loved ones that they were okay or and communicating, but didn't really talk among themselves. He got on another plane later that night. That was a replacement flight for, um, for this Alaska flight that returned to Portland. And he said he, the, the drinks were free. The food was free. He ordered a gin and tonic and just talked to another man who had gone through it as well. Um, and they were like, holy cow, what, what, what just happened? Um, and, and discussed it, but he was really, he, he's very interested in, in, you know, sh talking and, and to other passengers to try to help him process everything that they went through. Not a lot of people who who uh, share that experience, uh, Max Zane. What's what's your sense of what comes next in this story? Yeah, well, uh, at the time of us of our recording of this podcast, we've uh, just learned that the FAA will be, uh, you know, auditing um, Boeing and its suppliers, uh, trying to assess uh, whether the production of the seven three seven Max nine, you know, was following those those quality controls that they expect of any airline manufacturer. So. I think we're all going to see what what effect that has on Boeing, right? Which does have a, a presence here in Oregon, though it's mostly based in Seattle area. Uh, so I think that's something we're still waiting for. Of course, when it comes to the uh, the actual investigation into the, the you know the the loss of this door plug on the fuselage, I think that's something that could potentially lead to emergency findings at any point, or it could take as long as 18 months. So, right. So it's a story we're going to be continuing to follow uh, for a while. Yeah. And, and of course, um, uh, there were no, uh, no fatalities, uh, no uh, real critical injuries, but, uh, six passengers have sued Boeing over the incident. Um, 
uh, one of them uh, in the lawsuit says that they suffered a concussion and some uh, neck injuries and uh, ear bleeding. Uh, another says that they suffered a stress-induced seizure uh, after landing. Uh, that's according to reporting from the Seattle Times. Um, and uh, they, those six passengers are asking uh, for uh, that lawsuit to uh, become a class action lawsuit on behalf of all of the, uh, all of the passengers on board uh, as other investigations continue. Max, Zane, uh, I want to thank both of you for coming on Beat Check today and uh, talking about your reporting. Thank you so much, Elliot. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Or you can tell a friend. The best way to support our local journalism and reporting like this is with a subscription to the Oregonian and Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.